Well, about six years ago, five and a half or six years ago, um, a commencement speech from a high school graduation, uh, the high school was Wellesley High School in Massachusetts, started to go viral. Um, and it was the, the, the faculty, um, one of the faculty members had been chosen to give a speech, and he got a lot of notoriety, he ended up writing a book um, from the publicity that he got from the speech, and it was stood out just because it was so different than oftentimes the things that you hear at high school graduations. We just have a, about a one-minute clip of part of that speech. And your ceremonial costume, shapeless, uniform, one-size-fits-all. Whether male or female, tall or short, scholar or slacker, spray-tanned prom queen or intergalactic Xbox assassin, each of you is dressed, you'll notice exactly the same. And your diploma, but for your name, exactly the same. All of this is as it should be because none of you is special. <laughs> You're not special. You're not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your, <laughs> your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you are nothing special. And you're it goes against what we would normally hear, right? You can do anything. You're the greatest thing in the world. And he said, you're not that special. I mean, the truth is sometimes, obviously to parents, your kids are special, but we overuse the word special in our world today. Um, he went on in the speech to say, hey, listen, even if you're the valedictorian of this high school, you're one of 37,000 valedictorians in the United States this year. He joked, said, even the expression, you're one in a million, is just another way of saying there's actually 7,000 other yous in our world of 7 billion people. See, sometimes we use the phrase, oh, that person is so special, they're so unique, when really they're different, but they're not special. They're not one of a kind. But when it comes to Samson, he's special. When it comes to Samson, he's set apart from almost anything else we see like him in all of the Bible. Certainly in the book of Judges, Samson is special. He's different. And we're going to catch a glimpse of this as we begin our series um, tonight through the life of Samson. If you have your Bibles tonight um, with you, would you open them please to the book of Judges? The book of Judges chapter 13. You received a handout that has some of the text in it. Unfortunately, the text is too large, um, so there will be portions that we'll be reading that aren't in here. So if you have your Bible, um, it'd be great if you could be there um, and open to the book of Judges chapter 13. Well, Judges finds itself um, situated, it's the seventh book in our Bible, and it's after Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt, where they were enslaved. They wandered in the desert, um, and then Joshua brought them into the land of Israel, into their promised land, um, where they had victories over many of their enemies. And then starts the book of Judges. And what happens in the book of Judges is there's not one main or two main characters throughout, but rather every couple chapters, sometimes even every few verses, it seems like it's kind of switching main characters. And as you study the, the book of Judges, if we would have had a chance to look at it all the way through up to Samson, who actually is the final um, judge in the book of Samson, we'll start to see, if you look at it, cycles in the book of Judges. Cycles in the book of Judges, which look a little something 
like what you have on the screen. So each cycle starts with first and at the top apostasy. So this is idolatry. This is the Israelites walking away from God. In the book, it's used by the expression, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And almost always, immediately after they did evil in the sight of the Lord, the next phrase talks about their oppression. And it will say, so God gave them over to so-and-so. And God is very creative in who he keeps giving the Israelites over to, whether it be the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Philistines, all of these ites that he gives them over to to take capture over them. At some point um, in the normal cycle, the Israelites cry out for help. So there's an appeal for help from God. These are normally the first couple verses of each chapter. And then you have God raises up a deliverer or raises up a judge. He'll raise up a judge, and then the stories that that you may be familiar with in the book of Judges are these characters that God raises up, these people helping deliver the people from the oppression that they find themselves under. So people such as Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah, their stories respond to this cycle. But as these cycles go through the book of Judges, we notice that there's actually a downhill pattern to Israel's walk with God. Sometimes, I'm sure you've used this expression, like our walk with God sometimes seems to be one step back, two steps forward, but we're hopefully slowly going somewhere in our walk with God. For Israel, it was the other way. For Israel, it was one step back, they'd get delivered, and then it would be right back into apostasy. And then they deliver again, but then it was like even more sin as they find them slowly falling further and further away from walking with God. So Judges 13, starting in verse 1, it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive... And bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. As we walk tonight through Judges chapter 13, we're going to notice three truths about God. From this passage. The first truth that we see here is that God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. We see this clearly in the New Testament, but this theme of God's grace isn't just a New Testament idea. It's something that flows throughout all of human history of God being a God of grace. So we see in verse 1, the cycle begins. The people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them into the hand of the Philistines. There's the oppression. Interesting here, we notice that they're given to the Philistines for 40 years. This is double the length of any recorded time of oppression that we've seen up to this point in Judges. So the oppression's getting worse. The evil in God's eyes is getting worse. Um, The downhill trend is continuing. This time, though, God isn't just raising up anyone to deliver the people. He's delivering or raising up someone from before they were born. 
with most of every other judge that you see, whether it be Deborah or Gideon or these other people, he finds someone, normally an adult, already in Israel, and he raises and equips them. But he, for Samson, is unique because he doesn't come to Samson. He comes to his parents. He comes specifically to Samson's mom, a woman who's, we don't know her name. We just know her husband's name is Manoah. And he says, you are going to have a child. And there's a significance about this child that he's going to be not just any child, but he's going to be a Nazarite. Nazarite means one who is separate, set apart for God. And the theme here um, is there that, that she's replicated here in Judges 13 are the same themes that we see in the book of Numbers when it talks about someone who's to take a Nazarite vow. And so in Numbers chapter 6, we're told about people who want for a period to be set aside. And we see three themes emerging in Numbers 6, which we see repeated here in Judges 13. The first is the, the prohibition from wine and anything that comes from grapes. So it says in Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 to 4, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. I'm sorry if you like raisin bran, it's off limits. It's a tough life of a Nazarite. Not just wine and grapes, but second, it has to do with the hair on their head. Verse 5 of number 6. Number 6, verse 5 says this. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow long. And then the third thing was against anything unclean or dead animals or bodies. It says this in number 6, um, six. It says, all the days... That he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father, for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean. Because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is to be holy to the Lord. So these themes which have been already given to the Israelites by Moses, by God in Numbers chapter 6, are then given that this Nazarite vow is to be for your son, this is supposed to be for him. But this is very unique here in what the angel of the Lord is telling this woman to do. It's unique even for a Nazarite. Because notice that, that when we first read in number 6 verse 2, it says, it, for those who choose to do this, a Nazarite vow was normally someone who took it upon themselves. For Samson, it's not something he takes, it's something God gives him. It's a divinely imposed Nazarite vow. Not only that, but if you notice, his mother is actually to start the, the qualifications of it at conception. So for her, you're not to touch anything unclean. You're not to eat any grapes or drink any wine. You're not to cut your hair, even now when you will be um, pregnant with Samson. And not only that, but Samson is to be in Nazarite for his entire life. This isn't a set period of time that someone may take a vow, but for Samson, it's divinely given and it's for his entire life. Well, as we work through um, the life of Samson over the next four weeks, we're actually going to see a very interesting thing in that Samson is placed where he is in the life and in the history of Israel for a reason. Samson isn't just a man that we can learn a lot of lessons from. Samson himself is actually a reflection of how far Israel has fallen from God. 
Samson himself in his life is a spiritual reflection back to the people of Israel on their standing before God. And his start of his life reminds us of how Israel started out. And so we see first that just like Samson, Israel was miraculously born. Just like Samson was, Israel was miraculously born. If when you read about and heard about um, how she is barren, has no children, and the angel of the Lord appears to her and promises that a child comes. And if you were with us in the fall as we walk through the life of Abraham and Sarah, and you're like, hey, this kind of sounds like something we talked about a couple months ago. That's because it does sound a lot like that. Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of Israel, she was barren. They had no children. And this was a struggle that they walked through for a long time till God finally intervened and a miraculously a son was born to them. Just as Israel was miraculously born into a nation, so Samson's birth is miraculous. Not only that, but Samson, just as Israel, was called to be separate and set apart, specially devoted to God. Samson's whole life was to be set apart from everyone else, specially devoted to God. There are so many passages in the Bible that talk about that Israel as a nation should have functioned this way. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 is just one of those. He says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So we're going to see as Samson is a reflection of Israel on his high calling in which he starts his life, just as the high calling that God had placed on Israel. Well, we started off today by noticing those cycles. We have um, the, the apostasy, we have oppression, appeal for help, and deliverance. Did you notice something as we read these first five verses, that there's no appeal for help? Did you notice that, that there's an oppression By the Philistines after they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it's like, oh, and then God finds so-and-so and and he appears and says, you're going to have a son. See, this story highlights for us, it emphasizes God's grace in intervening into the life and the nation of Israel. See, the reality was all through the book of Judges, Israel never um, deserved God's grace and intervention in their lives. But by showing that here, when God is going to show up and do something, Israel isn't even asking for help. But it's because God takes the initiative towards his people because he moves towards people who are undeserved that he shows up and pursues them even when they don't even ask for help to begin with. It shows the grace of God. See, grace by its very nature is something that we don't deserve. Grace by its very nature is a gift that someone gives us and God's grace in our lives is always something that we in no way deserve. And these verses highlight the, the qualifications of the Israelites for God's grace here are nothing. They are totally undeserving, but it's God who intervenes anyways. This past year in 2017, one of the, the most popular movies um, that came out uh, was the movie Wonder Woman. Movie Wonder Woman. I'm not big into superhero movies, but there was a lot of buzz about this. And, and the, the theme of Wonder Woman is you have a woman, her name is Diana, in the movie. And she's kind of set apart and they're in this own unique place. And then suddenly, um, through a confluence of events, a soldier finds her and she hears about this war, which takes place in the time of World War I. And so she leaves kind of her utopian land with this soldier and she goes to Europe to the front to find the war. And in her mind, She thinks since she has all these superpowers, 
that if she shows up and she fights the war and wins the battle, that mankind will be clean and cleansed and stop fighting each other. She has this miraculous power that if she shows up and does this, they'll stop fighting. And eventually throughout the movie, we find that as she shows up and exercises her superpowers and wins battles and victories, that all it leads to is more fighting and more darkness and more hate. And, and there's this, this pinnacle scene near the end of the movie. I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. Sorry. Well, I won't entirely ruin it for you, right? But, but near the end of the scene, the, the villain that she's fighting with, he cries out to her to try and get her to stop when she's fighting for men. He goes, those mankind, they don't deserve your help. He said, they don't deserve it. They're wicked. They're always going to go back to fight. They don't deserve you to fight for them. And she comes to grasp in the pinnacle scene of the movie. She says, it's not about what they deserve. It's not about what they deserve. And she decides to act and to fight for them anyways. That is grace. It's not about what they deserve. It's about something more than that. My friends, anything good that we have in our lives, it's not because we deserve it. It's because God's grace in our lives. The fact that we can call ourselves a Christian, it's not because we, at any means, deserve God's love. It's all his grace. We are undeserving of all good things. But we serve a God who has always been a God of grace, who pursues his people, even in their undeserved state, and shows his love and grace to them. Verse 6. The woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I love that phrase. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now what we have here is this very interesting interchange and it's hard for us to cross cultural boundaries and go back several thousand years to understand exactly what's happening. But in the context, what's going to happen next is Manoah tries in every situation to get control. He finds himself caught off guard and by this mysterious visitor to his wife and he wants to take control of the situation. He wants to have power over what's going on. We first see this by he wants to make sure he has just as much knowledge as his wife does. So verse 8, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with a child who will be born. Now there's hints of jealousy in his prayer. Did the man of God appear to us, Manoah? No. He prayed to your wife. He never showed up to you. Come back to us, even though you never came to me to begin with. Right? I, I want to experience what she has experienced. Now shockingly, verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the... Woman, as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife. And he's probably thinking, what have I got to do? Are you kidding me? I just want, I just want to appear to me. What's going on? Verse 11. He said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. 
Manoah said, verse 12, Now, when your words come true, what is to be this child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now notice what just happened. He asked the angel of the Lord, tell me about my son. What's his mission going to be? And what's the angel say? This is what your wife needs to do. He's like, I, I, didn't, ask, I didn't ask that, but okay. Right? That he's, not, he's trying to get control over the situation and the angel of the Lord is not having it. The angel of the Lord is not going to be manipulated or controlled by any human being. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, um, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And so now since he, he's not getting much, he goes to hospitality. And for them in their culture, it's, this is kind of a sense of forced hospitality. Imagine this, basically, hey, if I feed you, you owe me. I kind of have one leg up on you, right? I fed you a meal. Now this makes you owe me something back in return. Sit down, let me cook a meal for you. He's trying to get control of the situation. Verse 16, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Now he's trying to get knowledge of identity to get an upper hand. For them in their time, names were not just simply your first name, but it revealed things about your character, your nature, where you came from. He's trying to get control of this man's identity, that he has a greater sense of knowledge of who this man is. Verse 18, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is too wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The second truth that we see about God um, in this passage of Judges 13, the second truth is that God is a God of wonder. God is a God of wonder. I love this response. What is your name? And he said, why would you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Or, or some translations say, saying it is beyond your understanding. What the angel of the Lord says, hey, listen, you want to know about me? No one could ever fully understand who God is. He is a God of wonder. There is more to him than we could ever possibly understand. Manoah tried in every situation, he tried every different angle to get control of the situation. And God said, uh-uh, you can't control me. I'm beyond your understanding. I'm not someone to be controlled by any human being. See, isn't it true in your life, I know it's true in mine, that you love to have control of certain things. You love to have control of certain things, right? I think lots of us um, who, who like to have control, we call ourselves more nice labels. Like, I'm a planner. 
I'm a detail person. Now, it's good to have plans and to be detailed. But what we're saying is I'm going to control every single thing of my life. So there's going to be no variables and no one can change anything. It's exactly how I want it. The problem is, is that sometimes that control leads into our relationship with God. Right? We can become such control freaks and have such plans about everything that we suddenly have to control even everything that God has to do. We go, okay, God, I need you to do this, and I need you to do this here, and then God, you're going to do this, and I'm going to act this way, and now God, this is how you're going to act, and this is what we're going to do, God. And God's up there going, no. No. See, we might think we can. We might try. But a God of wonder is a God beyond our control. And we could never control God. See, I think for each and every one of us, our natural tendency is towards controlling God in our lives. Our natural tendency is to try and control what God can and cannot do in our lives. And since our natural tendency is to try and control, what that means is that we need to walk as we walk closer to Christ. As we mature in our walk with the Lord, we need to continually and consciously give up the things of our lives that we're trying to control. If we're not consciously giving up things of our lives to God, what that means is we're subconsciously controlling it ourselves. What we are not consciously giving to God, it means we're subconsciously holding onto and controlling ourselves in our own lives. We need to grow daily in admitting to God that he needs to take control of more of our lives. See, what are you trying to control tonight in your life that God actually needs to control? What are you trying to control? Maybe for you, it's your future and your career. And you have the perfect path planned out. You've got it all the way to retirement. You know the age. You know what you're going to do. This is where I'm going to go. These are the next degrees I'm going to pursue. This is exactly how it's going to be. And there's nothing wrong with having plans. But some of us, our futures are determined by us in our minds. And God's over here. Maybe he's saying, maybe I have something different. Maybe I'm going to do something in your life that you don't see right now because it's beyond your understanding. If I were to tell it to you, you would blow you away. Maybe you're trying to control people in your life. Maybe you're trying to control your spouse. How's that working out? Maybe you're trying to control your children. And if I create just all these perfect environments and if I do all of this, then they have to turn out to love God. They have to turn out to be successful. They have to do this. And we, we try to control our kids rather than trust God with our kids. There's so many areas of our lives that we naturally try and take control. Whereas God says, you need to trust me. You need to admit that, that it's in my hands and not keep it all in your hands. So the angel of the Lord appears in the flame, goes up. Manoah and his wife fall on their faces to the ground. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. The Manoah knew that he was, in fact, the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, The wife brings the sense of reality and intelligence. I find this way too real in my life, too. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offerings at our hands, or shown us all these things, and now announced to us such things 
as these, right? Manoah's wife is like, well, yes, it's true that to see God's presence is to see your sin and so to, to not deserve to live. She's like, but he accepted the offering we took. She's like, and I think God promised that we'd have a son. It's hard to have a son when you're dead, at least last time I checked. So she's like, Manoah, I think we're okay. I think if God wanted to kill us, we would already be dead. Verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadan between Zorah and Eshtel. The third truth we see about God in this passage, the third truth is that God is a God of power. God is a God of power. Notice when God shows up in the nation of Israel. He shows up in an impossible situation. So bad that the people living in sin and rebelling against God are in oppression and they're not even calling out to God for help. They've given up. That's where God decides to intervene. Notice who he picks to intervene with. He doesn't pick with anyone. He's like, oh, look, look at these two people. They've never had kids. They can't have kids. Perfect candidates. I'm going to show up in their life. That's what I'm going to do. See, God often takes the impossible situations and acts in those because it's then where his power is undeniably seen and we see the truth and the power of God more clearly than ever before. See, when we think of the story of Samson, we often think of Samson's strength and his mighty acts. When in reality, when we think of the story of Samson, we shouldn't think of Samson's strength. We should think of God's. We should think of the power of God and what God is actually doing and using throughout everything in all of human history. There's a new phrase um, that's come into popularity the last several years. And it's the phrase, if you're a millennial like I am, you'll, you'll have heard this phrase. Hopefully you haven't used it a lot. If you do have, I apologize. But it's a phrase called adulting. Adulting. Any of you heard of this phrase? All right, we have some millennials raising their hands. See, I, didn't, I wasn't joking, right? Um, adulting. Basically what this is, is it's people of my generation, that's like people age 20 to late 30s, right? Acting like adults and bragging about it. Because apparently acting like an adult if you're a millennial is something that you need to be thanked for because that's not just to what adults do, right? So it's like you'll see this around paying, your, paying my taxes. I was adulting, right? Or I went to the grocery store and I bought groceries. Look at how good I'm adulting in life. Basically what it is is it's people trying to show, hey, look, I'm competent at being a grown-up. I'm, be, I'm competent at doing this thing called having responsibilities and following through with it. And while the phrase is funny, it is true that in so much of our life, we just grow to be competent, and that's a good thing, right? You want to be competent at work. But so often, we, we make competency the number one thing of our lives. See, the, the expression of competency is so true that if you go to a new job, maybe you're starting tomorrow, and you're not sure how you're going to do, maybe a piece of advice someone would give to you is, well, just fake it till you make it. Fake competency. Act like you know what's going on until you eventually figure it out. Because heaven forbid you show up on your first day of work and say, I need some help. Because we don't want to ask for help. We have to show competency in our lives. And oftentimes, this is how we act towards God. That we need to be competent in our lives. And sometimes we find ourselves drowning because we're trying to do it ourselves we're trying to fake it till we make it. And we can't do that in our spiritual lives. 
We're drowning, trying to be competent and not getting anywhere. We're trying to handle our marriage, our kids, our boss, the pressures we feel of life all by ourselves, and we're drowning. We're trying to, to manage the emptiness, the sadness, the loneliness that can be a part of life, and we're drowning. We're trying to manage our sin by ourselves, and we know inside we're not doing a good job, and we're drowning. Friends, God is a God of all power. God doesn't want your competency. He wants your heart. God does not want you to try and fake it till you make it. God wants you to say, I can't make it. I need you. We don't need to come to God and try and act competent like we've got it all together because none of us do. None of us do. And so often, we don't see God's power in our lives because we're living our lives like we don't need it. Because we're just getting by. We're showing the face. We're doing good. We put a smile on. When inside, we're like, man, I need God. We don't see God's power because we're not living like we need it. Friends, tonight, maybe it's time for us to stop pretending that we have it all together. None of us are competent. All of us need God's power in our lives. See, just as God can enter into an impossible situation with unrepentant people to a barren couple and say, this is where I'm going to work. God can enter into your impossible situation and he has the power to fix whatever you may be facing. The power to sustain you through whatever difficult time you are going through right now. Whatever conflict is in your family, in your relationships, God has the power that you need. Whatever cycle of sin you find yourself in in your life that you can't get out of no matter how hard you try, God says you can't do it on your own. With my spirit, you can. He has the power we need. Maybe you're lost in your sin and you're trying to manage your sin. You'll never get there. But God is strong enough over our sin. That's why he provided Jesus, the one who can have victory over even our sin so that we can have a relationship with God. God is a God of power. Where in your life do you need to experience that tonight? Let's stop acting like we're competent, like we've got it all together and just freely admit to God, God, I need you. This is where I need you. The good news of scripture is that when we call out to God that we need him, he's faithful, he's strong, and he will always provide for us. God, we thank you that you are a wonderful God beyond our understanding. A God overflowing with love and grace towards us. God, you are a God of power. God, I pray that wherever our needs are tonight, that you would meet us. God, may your spirit humble us even right now in this moment that we can admit we need you. We can't do this on our own. We need your power in our lives. God, as we humble ourselves, we thank you for the promise that you will meet us. You will provide. You are always faithful. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.